0: The title of the talk, Celibacy of Marriage, a Calling of God, is a title that I gave to a Bible study I did on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Winston called and asked what the uh, title was, so I gave it to him, and I saw that in the, the program. I thought afterwards that that's not really a very appropriate title for this in that it's a mute question for most of the folks sitting here tonight. If that's all there is to the chapter, the calling of God has been determined and we can wrap it up and go down and have some more popcorn. <laughs> but there might be uh, some benefit in looking at the chapter. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd appreciate it if you would turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 7. And Winston, that's in the New Testament. So, uh, Charles, just sit next to him. If you'd help him there, I'd appreciate it. First Corinthians chapter
1: 7.
0: Let's unite our hearts together in a word of prayer. Father, you taught us in the Bible that in order for us to look at the Scriptures, and understand what is being said, it requires a supernatural act on your part. I remember how the Apostle Paul said, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. And how our Lord Jesus made the promise that the Comforter of which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father would send in his name, that he would teach us all things. And so we want to acknowledge our dependence upon you tonight, and we ask that as we open the Word of God and look at it, you'd give us the ability to see spiritual truth, not for the purposes of increasing our knowledge, but in hopes of changing our lives. Lord, we've carved time out of our busy schedules to be here these days. That's our goal. That's our quest. And we ask that you'd honor it because of the work of Jesus Christ. For it is his, his name that we pray. Amen. Now, those of you who have spent any time at all in First Corinthians know that the Apostle Paul, who founded the church at Corinth, is addressing a series of problems that are prevalent in the church. Oftentimes, hear people say that they would to God that we could create a New Testament church. And I read Corinthians, and I pray God deliver us from the New Testament church. If there ever was a church that was a can of worms, it was Corinth. People coming to the Lord's table drunk, comparing one another with one another, arguing, dissension, all kinds of problems in the church. Man living in incest with his father's wife. On and on, ad nauseum. And so Paul deals with this. Beginning at chapter 7, and going to the end of the book, he addresses a series of questions that are raised by the Corinthians. Evidently, they came to him in the form of a letter. And so he systematically raises the question and addresses the answer. And we have that in the seventh chapter. Notice how it begins, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. Now, let me start handling, he says, the issues that you addressed in your letter to me. And then he begins to deal with them. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is a difficult chapter. Difficult in many regards. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to apply. It's difficult because Paul seems to shift between saying something's right and something may not be right or something is a command and something's an opinion and it's kind of hard to find your way through that maze that's what we'll be trying to do tonight it's a difficult passage because for example of some of the things that he says for example in verse 1 he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman that's double tough for most of us or verse 5 it says in marriage don't refuse one another now most men would say amen to that But a lot of marriages find that to be a problem. Or again in verse 8, it says it's better not to marry. Most of us would find that very hard to take. Verse 14, he says the unbelieving husband is consecrated by the believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated by the believing husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. What in the world does he mean by that? That's a hard saying. And then to add to that, he says in verse 29, Let those who are married be as though they were never married. And we wonder about that. It's hard to understand in another sense in that he mingles the commands with the suggestions. For example, in verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord. In verse 1, he says it's good not to touch a woman. Does that mean we shouldn't do it or can't do it or ought not to do it? or What exactly does he mean by that? Verse 28, he says you can do whatever you want, he says, but I would spare you. Hmm. Verse 35, he says, I write these things for your profit. And does that mean if we don't want to profit by them, we can ignore them? How do we handle that? And so forth. Now, even though the suggestions, men, are mingled with the commands, we should not lose sight of the fact that the whole chapter is undergird by the biblical absolutes. This is a chapter written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we ought to handle it as such. Now, with that in mind, let me remind you here that, or let me point out to you, I should say that in my study of it, I, I divided it into four sections, four paragraphs, verses 1 through 9, the necessity of marriage for some. And then 10 to 16, the sanctity of marriage for all. And we'll come back and look at these one at a time. 17 to 24, called to live as God leads. And 25 to 40, the advantages of celibacy. And the necessity of marriage for some, one to nine, the sanctity of marriage for all. 10 to 16, called to live as God leads, 17 to 24, and the advantages of celibacy, 25 to 40. Now, in these four paragraphs, I have extracted eight principles. And they all deal with how to relate to the opposite sex. Now, there's nothing magical or uh, inspired about the eight principles. These just happen to be the eight I came up with in my own personal study. In yours, you may come up with six, or ten, or twelve, or thirty. You know, These are the eight I came up with, and i like to share them with you. Now, let me say also, as we get started here, that what I'd like to do is uh, interact with you as we go along, and so if you have any questions, or any comments, or uh, whatever, just, just feel free to raise them as we go, and if we run out of time, we'll just quit, and uh, we won't worry about the clock, or where we are, we'll just... Let's take it as we go, all right? And uh, so I want you to feel free just to raise whatever issues come to your mind. The first paragraph is verses 1 through 9, The Necessity of Marriage for Some. I'm going to be reading out of the King James Version. I urge you to follow along in whatever translation you happen to have. Now, concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman... Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath this proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn Now verse 1 contains the first principle. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the principle. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now I know that some of the translations say in there, it is good for a man not to commit immorality with a woman. The context is obviously immorality. For he says in verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So the context is immorality. I want to remind you, as we look at this, that there are three sex gates through which an individual can walk. Three sex gates that the Bible points out to us. The first is found in Job 31.1. I'm not going to turn to it. I'm just going to make reference to it. Job says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Job 31.1. And the first gate is the eye or the mind gate. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And note how Job links the eyes and the mind together. And what Job is saying is, if I am not going to look, then why think about it? Let me suggest to you that the most potent sex organ for a man, I have have no idea what it is for a woman, but the most potent sex organ for a man is his mind the battle is won or is lost in our thought life job says i made a covenant with mine eyes why then should i think upon a maid i remember back in college i don't know how many years ago that was more years ago than i care to remember anyway i had a course in psychology i soon quit psychology I'm really glad that God has gifted men like Dr. Brandt uh, to be psychologists. Scared the tar out of me. They talked about a schizophrenic, and I looked at those characteristics, and I said, That's me. (laughs) And then they talked about a neurotic, and I looked at the characteristics, and I said, Well, that's the way I am, too. And then they talked about a psychotic, and I said, That's me, too. And then I got so scared, I just quit. But I remember in the Course that. Somewhere along the line, the, the professor, and this was not a Christian university or anything, but along, somewhere along the line, they talked about a thing called psychological acceptance. At least that's how I remember it being verbalized. And what the professor said to us was that if we embrace psychologically and emotionally an idea as our own, then when the opportunity presents itself to do it, the barriers are down And the urge to commit it is irresistible. And I want to say to you, that scared me. That really scared the tar out of me. Because I don't know about your mind, but my mind is a very active mind, and a lot of that activity is in areas it should not be engaged. Because the Bible says, There hath no temptation taken me, but such as is common to you, I surmise that probably most of you in this auditorium know what I'm talking about. And I made a decision when I got married that I would never mentally cheat on my wife. Now, that's not because I'm strong. That's not because I don't have temptations and battles and wrestle and fight with those areas ever bit as much as you do. But the idea of my embracing infidelity toward my wife and then destroying my ability to withstand the temptation when it presented itself so traumatized me that I said, God, by your grace, I am simply not going to do that. And so I made a covenant with God that I would never mentally cheat on my wife. And guys, I want to tell you, the blood runs as hot in my veins as it does... Well, it's hard. No way I can evaluate it in a comparative basis. I want to tell you, it runs very, very hot in my veins. But I want to say to you that the emotions are the obedient servant of the mind. I think about something and I get angry. I think about something else and I laugh. The emotions are the obedient servant of the mind and the mind is the obedient servant of the world. My world determines what I think about. If I want to think about so-and-so offending me, then I think about that. If I want to think about how great God is, then I think about that. If I want to think about immorality, then I think about that. My will determines that. Love is a classic illustration of that. I looked in every dictionary that I had, and every one of the dictionaries defined love in terms of the emotions. The Bible defines it in terms of the will. I couldn't find a single dictionary that defined it as a volitional issue. But because it is the thesis of the Bible that the mind is the obedient servant of the will... God Almighty takes love and elevates it to the volitional arena. And he says, A commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. It is a command from God. Because that's the final court of appeal in all of our lives. And so also in the sex arena. I want you to notice in Job 31.1 that it's an example. Job says, "I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid?" He doesn't say you ought to do it. He doesn't say, God commanded everybody to do it." He says, "This is something I decided I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to my confidence. I'm going to tell you what the decision was that I made. I decided that I would make a covenant with my eyes. Therefore I don't think upon needs. Now the second gate is the touch gate. 1 Corinthians seven 1. I where he says here, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I want to go back to that word touch. I looked it up because the translations do differ. I don't know an awful lot about Greek, but the word, for those of you who are Greek buffs, the word is heptomai, and it means to touch. It means to put your fingers on something and touch it. For example, when the Lord Jesus which had the hem of his garment touched by the woman who was ill and said, who touched me? That's the word. And he says, because of sex and because of immorality and because of fornication, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Keep your hands off of her. Now, I know that this is hard to do in a hugging society. And guys, we are in a hugging society. I tried to think back when I first came into the Christian faith. This was about 34 years ago and I don't remember people hugging everybody like they're doing today. Mercy, everybody. I mean, girls come up hugging you. Everybody's hugging you today. And I don't know why that is unless high touch is compensated by high tech. I, I don't. Maybe that's it. But it is hard to avoid that. But that is the thesis of the Apostle Paul here in this verse. He says, don't touch the opposite sex. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't touch them. Now, I want you to notice that for Job, it was a, an example. For Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.1, it is a suggestion. He doesn't say, God commands you not to touch a woman. He says, it is good to not touch a woman. It's a suggestion. For your own good, don't touch her. Now, I know men, and I want to say it to you up front, I know that you make Paul look like a fool in his statement here. Here's a gal falling down the stairs. She's right in front of you. You step aside crash. <laughs> and you say, it's good not to touch a woman. And obviously, that's not what he has in mind here. Obviously, that's not what he has in mind here. And there are times when you simply cannot avoid it without being rude. Nevertheless, the suggestion stands. And if it is a good suggestion, then why not obey it? And if it is not a good suggestion, then what in the fat is it doing in the Bible? That leads us to the third gate. If the first gate is the eye mind gate, and the second gate is the touch gate, then the third gate is what I call the pornos gate. The pornos is the word, Greek word for immorality, from which we get the word pornography. First Corinthians six nine. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, that's the word pornos, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. People who commit immorality do not go to heaven. God will judge them. Now, pornos is illicit sex of any kind. Don't do it. Now, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not an example. This is a command from God. Don't do it. Now, gentlemen, I cannot tell you that you cannot walk through gates one and two. I can tell you you'd better not walk through gate number three. But I remind you that between gate two and gate three there is a wilderness filled with landmines. And if you elect to go through it, you're on your own, as far as the Bible is concerned. And I remember I taught high school for a, number of, a few years out in, Cali- out in California. And we would talk about spiritual things every so often, and whenever the occasion arose, they would ask me about standards on the date on dating and date life. Can we kiss? Can we pet? can we do anything short of the act of sex? The truth of the matter is the Bible does not tell you. The Bible gives you three gates. And if you elect to neglect the suggestion of gate number two, you're on your own before arriving at gate number three. And guys who begin to flirt with that are in trouble. Serious, serious trouble. Now, notice with me, in chapter 6 and verse 18, that Paul says there's something uniquely different about pornos. He says, flee pornos. Every sin that a man committeth is without the body, but he that committeth pornos sinneth against his own body. It stands in a class all of its own. Now, I don't pretend to understand all that the Apostle Paul meant by that statement in verse 18. But my own personal experience in watching men, and as I read the Bible, I discover that most men who pass through that gate never fully recover from its devastating effects. King David be a classic illustration of it. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, God forgave him and God restored his kingdom and God called him a man after his own heart. But I submit to you that he never fully recovered from that event. His kingdom never had the momentum that it had prior to that. And I can tell you men, I don't need to. You know them on your own. Men who have elected to go through this and they never fully recover. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because The sex act is so closely akin to the union that we have with Christ. Maybe it's the the spiritual or mystical dimension that's present in the sex act. I'm not sure. But the Bible speaks very, very pointedly regarding it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a coward. I do not want to get to heaven and try to explain to God why it is or was on the basis of the information he gave me that I elected to transgress this command. That I do not want to do. Not only that, I don't want to face my wife. Not only that, I can't think of many things in life that would be more traumatic than for me to try to explain to my children why it was that I cheated on their mother. Man, I mean to tell you that that just scares the talk. I to this day I cannot understand how men can emotionally cope with that. When their son looks him in the eye and says, "Now, Dad, tell me one more time why it was that life with my mother was not enough uh, for you." Whew. I mean to tell you guys, thanks but no thanks. So there's some things that I've tried to implement in my life. I've not implemented them a thousand percent. I offer them to you as suggestions. There's nothing sanctified. There's nothing inspired about them. You could take them or leave them, but I just offer them to you to think about. Seven in all. Seven suggestions. Number one, never travel alone unless you're being met at the other end by somebody you know. Never travel alone unless you're being met at the other end by somebody you know. Number two, Never spend a night alone in a motel room. Never spend a night alone in a motel room, guys. The temptations are so great, particularly with the filth they're able to pipe into your room. I know some of you are salesmen. I know some of you travel, and I know it's hard to put this into practice. I travel, and I know it is hard for me to put it into practice. Number three. Never counsel the opposite sex. Now by counsel I mean enter into a prolonged relationship with them whereby you're giving them help. If somebody comes up to you and asks you a question and you give them counsel on it in a public place, I'm not talking about that. Number five or four, I guess it is, never disciple the opposite sex. Disciple. If I understand First Timothy 5 correctly, that's why God gave the younger women the elder women. Yes. Number five. Never be alone with the opposite sex. Number six. Do not mentally cheat on your wife. And number seven, don't touch the opposite sex. Keep your hands off of them. Well, but we're still on principle one here, right? Yes. And are the other seven just much fun? <laughs> TJ, I'll let you decide for yourself when we get done. Now, guys, I cannot guarantee to you that I'll never fall into immorality. But I want to say to you that my chances of survival are greater if I abide by these seven suggestions that I've made to myself and offer to you. Yes, Lon. Do your second one. Never
1: stay alone. Yeah, is that the second
0: one? Yeah, don't stay alone in a motel room. I,
2: I know what you're saying about TV stuff, but how in the world do you
0: get around that? I just I'm saying to you, there are times when you can't get around it. And as I told you at the front end, there are times when I can't avoid it. The times I can't avoid touching a woman. But that's where I'm heading. That's my purpose. And I do everything I can to try to avoid that. And if i got a friend in the city, I'll call him and ask him if I can bunk with him. Take somebody along with me. Take my wife. Do something. If I can. But I can't always do it. No, there is. You into a counseling relationship with them. See, for example, if you, know, you lead in singing and so forth, so forth. Somebody comes up to you and asks you a question. I, I would, you know, or a girl. Say, no, I can't counsel you, so I turn you. I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm not making this ludicrous. What about? I have a woman who works for me, and you know, it's almost a mentor-mentee relationship there. And that. Yeah, most of us have secretaries. I think you've to be very, very careful. And, and I, I, guys, I don't need to remind you, just a lot of the trouble men enter into is in those kind of relationships. I think you've got to be very, very careful. And when you hire a secretary, hire an ugly one. Mercy, I, I hope this doesn't go out. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. I think he's talking the whole chapter to Christians. First Corinthians 7, verse 9. Does that pertain to Christians or non-Christians? And the rest of your questions, Jim? Please turn to side two. Six nine or are you talking about seven nine? It's better to marry than to burn? Yeah. I think he's talking about burning up with passion. Not, not I don't think that's the fires of hell. I think it's the, the fires of unfulfilled appetites.
1: What
0: about six nine? for six nine. Six nine. Yeah, the question is, does 1 Corinthians 6.9 imply that there's a loss of salvation? I don't, I don't want to you know, chase rabbits on that, so this one, so let me just say to you very briefly that I think that the Bible teaches that there is a difference between a man who gives his life, or who, who embraces, brings into his bosom, as it were, sin, as opposed to the individual who like David in a moment of weakness falls into sin and Paul says in in Romans chapter 6 that the first kind of a person cannot by definition be a Christian to allow sin to rule in your body and to be a Christian is a contradiction of terms it simply cannot be Now, the Bible is written... The assurance, the passages on assurance of salvation are written for the obedient. They are not written, guys, for the disobedient. And you've got two questions you've got to answer in your mind as you deal with this in the Bible. You've got to deal with the fact of your assurance and you've got to deal with the feeling of your insur- assurance. The fact of your assurance is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the feeling of assurance is based on your life of obedience. And it is the thesis of the Bible that if you're living a disobedient life, you have no reason to feel assured. As a matter of fact, if you're living in willful disobedience to the commandments of God, any assurance you have is a misplaced and illegitimate assurance. And the statement stands. I didn't make it. Paul did. He says you got to understand that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't deceive yourself. That includes fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abuses of themselves of mankind. And he goes on into verse 10 as well and ends it by saying they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So I would urge you stay away from them. If you want to go to heaven stay away from them. Don't engage in a theological argument to try to justify your behavior. Just don't do it.
1: Principle two.
0: Okay, Blair asks the question: Why does the NIV say not to not to marry? Is it not to marry instead of not to touch? The, the Guys, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but so I'll say it anyway. The NIV is not an accurate translation. <laughs> I'll stop
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> Principle number two. Let me ask you a question. Yes.
0: Is it possible to touch a woman with, without having an immoral thought or intent. Yes. It is not possible to touch a woman without an, having an
2: immoral
1: thought or intent. Yes.
0: John makes a good point. It's because your motives are as pure as the driven snow, which everybody in this room questions.
1: <laughs> Hers may not be. Yes. Okay, principle
0: number two, found in verses three through five. Let me read them again to you. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent, for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. The principle is do not withhold sex from your spouse. Don't withhold sex from your spouse. Gentlemen, it is the thesis of the Bible that when you marry your body is no longer your own it belongs to your partner. Sex should never be withheld as a form of manipulation or punishment. Now, I readily concede that that is most often violated by women rather than men. But the principle still stands. It is a shortcut to immorality. So understand that. The Bible expressly prohibits the withholding of sex from one another, except it be by mutual consent. Any questions or comments on that?
2: Does Bible study evenings every evening constitute withholding? withhold? does what again? I'm sorry. The equivalent of uh, I've got a headache tonight, dear. You know, I've got a Bible study. I've got to prepare for it. Is there a higher? Higher than that physical sense that they can satisfy or meet somehow this this uh, question of you know I've seen it for a period of time if it's not mutual.
0: Well, see, I, I can't speak for for you in the relationship with your wife, but but I I've been married to my wife for almost 26 years, and, and I I know the woman well enough to know you know where she's coming from, and. Uh, You know, if she's not feeling well or things are not right, then, then of course I want to honor that. I'm not. I don't want to be an animal. But on the other hand, guys, if uh, if it's a ploy, see, I, I think most husbands suspect that. And if you wonder, say, well, honey, I'll wait up until you're done with your Bible study. yes I think that's probably true I think that that if I would urge you to look to yourself if you've got a problem in these areas with your wife now it may not be you there may be some other problems there may be problems that she needs and you both need help on but guys it's inconceivable to me that we who own Jesus as Lord and are in the people business and have professed to be in the people business with the idea of serving and meeting the needs of others, that we would treat the sex act any differently. And that when we have sex with our wives, it is with the idea not of satisfying ourselves, but with the idea of satisfying her. And our satisfaction takes place as a byproduct, a derivative of her being satisfied. And I, I, I Dr. Brown ought to come up here and do the exegeting of that idea, but because I'm not a psychologist. I don't profess to know how to counsel people. And I want to say to you that if that's not the way it is, if that's the way it ought to be. And if you're treating your wife like an animal and using her to satisfy your own drive, I think you've got, you've got a real problem. Let me ask you, since we've got the experts sitting over there, do you have any comment on
1: that?')
0: I want you guys to know we rehearsed that all afternoon.. Any other comments or questions before we go on? Okay, verses 6 through 9 are dealt with under another principle. So I'd like to hold off on those and cover them later on. That takes us then to the second paragraph, verses 10 to 16, the sanctity of marriage for all. Verses 10 to 16. Follow along, please. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and not let the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and if she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? This paragraph contains the third principle, which is God does not sanction divorce. God does not sanction divorce. Now, verses 10 and 11 deal with a situation where both are Christians. Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled unto her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Note, it is a command from the Lord. And he says two things. Don't separate. But if you do, don't remarry. Don't divorce your wife. Now, in 12 to 16, he deals with marriage where one is a believer and the other is not. Now, I personally don't think that he's talking about where a believer married an unbeliever. I think what he's talking about here in the Corinthian church is where a couple come to Christ and one or the other becomes a Christian and the other does not how do you handle that kind of a relationship? Excuse me, they're married. I'm sorry, thank you for clarifying that. I misspoke myself. Thank you. They're married and one comes to Christ and the other does not. Thank you. And these are the observations that he makes. Number one is that the believer is not to initiate divorce. The second is that the children are protected by the believing spouse. I don't want to get into what that means. I'm not sure I understand what that means. But that's what verse 15 says. No, excuse me, verse 14. Then the third thing he says here, that if the unbeliever initiates divorce, the believer is not bound. And I want to pause there for just a couple of moments. What does he mean by he is not bound? I did a considerable amount of reading on this and discovered that the commentators are divided. Divided as to whether or not this means that he can go ahead and separate, but not divorce and remarry, or he can separate, divorce, and is free to remarry. Now, I think probably the, the clearest exegesis of this that I was able to run across is a man by the name of Murray. John Murray, he's dead now. He used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He has a little book on... The title of it is Divorce. It's not all that thick. Though he's a theologian, he writes it in a a way that's very easy to read and understand. If you have questions on the field of divorce, I'd strongly suggest the book to you. It's just maybe a hundred pages thick is all. The title of it is Divorce by John Murray. And John Murray says that as he has done the study on it, that he feels that what Paul is talking about here is it is permissible to separate, but no remarriage. That if the unbelieving spouse willfully walks away from the believer, then there's nothing he can do about that. He's not bound, but he's not free to remarry. And Murray's contention is that the only justification for divorce and remarriage is adultery and that's mentioned by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19 verse 9. But this is a comment I'd like you to consider with me. That, that we're believers. We're talking to men who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. And guys, God does not sanction divorce. Divorce. And God has given us some commandments regarding divorce. And one of the questions I invite you to think about is what are the purposes of the commands? Why did God give us commands in the Bible? Did he give us commands for the purpose of making it hard on us? Did he give you the commands in the Bible because he says, Okay, even though I love you, I want to make a double tough on you while you're here on earth. Let me put the screws on you. Or was he motivated out of love in the commands? Did he give the commands for the same reason that a father gives commands to his children? And if so, then why do we try to manipulate them so that they say what we want them to say rather than take them at face value? See, I'm speaking to dads here, by and large, tonight. And the the rules and the regulations that you set forth in your family are designed with the best interest of your family at heart. Is that not true? I mean, you don't sit up and say to that precious little girl or son of yours, let's see, now how can I really make the day tough on them? I think I'll just really be mean and vindictive. I'll give them some rules that will really smash them. See, I, I don't know any dads that think that way. And the Bible says, "If Jesus speaking, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more your Heavenly Father to you? I mean, if that's how you're motivated towards your kids, doesn't it stand to reason that your Heavenly Father, who is free from sin and pure in His motive, and has demonstrated that by virtue of His death on the cross on your behalf, doesn't it stand to reason that when He gives you a command, it's because He's got your best interest at heart. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not all that bright. I'm, I'm not a real clever guy. But, but, but it seems to me that's pretty reasonable. Can anybody see any flaws in that logic? If not, then why not obey it? Now, I know every time we want to disobey it, it's because we think we've got a good reason for disobeying it. It's like Dr. Brandt's child said to him when he wanted to do something that mom and dad said they couldn't do. They thought the command was unreasonable, not in principle, but in personal application. That's the way we always are. Now, God, I'm not suggesting suggestion you get rid of the command called divorce or remarrying. I think it's a good command. It just doesn't happen to apply to me. Therefore, appreciate you making an exception here. I've never met a Christian man yet who's divorced his wife who would say, I think God ought to rip the command out of the Bible. I've asked guides. I've talked to them. Well, you think we ought to eliminate that? No, no. It's a good command. Then why don't you keep it? Now, he doesn't want it this way, but this is what he says to me. Well, Henriksen, when God wrote the command, he didn't realize what a tough situation I'd get into. And if he realized it, he'd have modified it. And that's why I'm modifying it. And I want to say to you, that's exactly what I heard Dr. Brandt's child say to him. Appreciate your authority, Dad. Don't want to argue with your right to give commands. Commands are good, basically. Just so happens in this particular case, it didn't apply to me. So I think that how you approach the whole question of divorce and remarriage really is a byproduct of your view of God and why he is giving you the commands. Yes. I think divorce recovery is marvelous, Dave. I, I applaud the divorce recovery workshop. I think it's superb. But in its conception, it was not meant to be a halfway house for remarriage. It was meant to take people, most of whom, as you yourself already pointed out, were not Christians, and help them go through the trauma of it in hopes as a vehicle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's super. We don't write them off. We try to lead them to Jesus. And so what are you saying? saying That's not the point. The point is not whether you can be forgiven. The point is you're breaking the commandments of God. And when you break the commandment of God with or without forgiveness, there is still injury. And gentlemen, it is the thesis of the Bible that that is an injury that you will take into eternity with you. So never forget that. You're playing for awfully high stakes. Yes?
2: I think one point that might be made is already injured. It seems like there with all sin, there's two consequences. One is the eternal consequences, which is what there is forgiveness for. But then there's the natural consequences, which all the forgiveness in the world may not ameliorate. And recent research has been done in uh, Marin County by some very secular people. Uh, Judith Wallerstein, a five-year follow-up of divorced families, couples. Um, their initial book was called After the Breakout. And they basically pretty much glossed them. It, it, it was pretty positive on unfortunately. But five years later, they reported, since last year, their data showed that everybody, or a vast percentage, uh, reported they really regretted the consequences five years later were terrible kids reported it, the divorce initiating spouse reported it, and the divorce, the left behind spouse reported it. So, good research will bear out what scripture says, is that the consequences are oftentimes unforeseen, usually unforeseen, when someone's caught up in the rush to get away from immediate pain. Uh, but it's pretty clear. Gail, yeah. well, give some clarification. Are you say...
0: Saying- but in Matthew 19, verse 16, the 19th verse is is not the command that a compromise of God to the people like the divorce was in the Old Testament. Yes, yeah, I understand Matthew 19 in it's the issue where they came to him and said, let's talk about divorce. And Jesus says, don't divorce. And because of the whole discussion, Moses gave you the bill of the divorcement. Because of the hardness of your heart, but from the beginning it was not meant to be so. And then they pushed him a little bit further on that, and that's where he said that the, that you should not or cannot divorce and remarry except to be for adultery. And it's worded there, Gail, in such a way. Verse nine is worded in such a way that it's not clear whether Jesus means that. Adultery gives you permission, and I'm writing that word permission, to divorce but not remarry, or whether or not the verse gives you permission to both divorce and remarry. But at that point, it's damage control because you've broken the commandment of God. He doesn't want you to do it. God never intended divorce
1: out of the will of God. Yeah. Any
0: Yeah. Any time, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in another principle, but any time you enter into divorce, you're entering into the permissive will of God at the best possible scenario. <laughs> uh, we talk about uh, divorce and remarriage, uh, one thing the to tough means to
2: understand uh, what God said about not being remarried is just because I may have a little piece of paper that, that says that the government uh, says that I and my spouse are no longer married, doesn't mean God views it that way. So just because I stay on divorce does not mean God says that I'm divorced. And that, I think that clarifies it for me a little bit. why He says no marriage, because He may still consider cons- you married to that. good point.
0: Good point. Yes?
2: Well, if your spouse divorces you, you can't enforce the marriage on there. It's true. So what's your status then at that point? real life case, I mean, my wife committed adultery over a long period of time. Then uh, I forgave her and did everything I could to put it back together.
0: Yeah, I well, know, I know, Bob, that we're talking here to, to people that have been scarred and, and injured and hurt in these areas. And uh, I just think that what you have to do is objectively as you can, just take a look at the Word of God and say, now, okay, on the basis of the Word of God, how do I handle where God has me right now? What do I do with this information? And there are some, some situations that you can write them. Some, some men divorce and, and if they want to work at it, they can get the thing back together again. For some people, it's like a broken egg. You know, The divorce has taken place. Remarriage has taken place. There's nothing you can do about it. It, it. All you can do is clean the egg up off the sidewalk and start over. But the purpose is not to put anybody on a guilt trip. It's just to find out what does the Bible say regarding this? Excuse me. The issue on remarriage comes in verse 16. Excuse me. 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. What does that phrase, under under bondage, mean? Does it mean that he can remarry? That was the reason why we brought up the issue. And as I pointed out, we don't know for sure. But we do know this for sure, Chuck. This we know for sure, that God doesn't want you to divorce.
2: I agree with that, but I don't see anything about remarriage there If you're not under bondage, that means you're free. To what? Remarry. Or whatever. Whatever you and the Lord... Uh,
0: and I And I concede to you that that is a possible interpretation. But if she be part, let her remain unmarried. Yeah. That certainly would prohibit remarriage. Yes. Well, the word is bound. So, I don't know what the word bound means. That's where the King James uses the word bondage. I don't know what translation you've got, but... What does it say with you? Yeah. Yes. I thought
2: verse 11 was to two believers, both both believers, and verse 15 is where the one-one deal.
0: That's my understanding also.
2: Does that make a difference in the marriage
0: thing? Some people think so. That's That's the reason I brought in the commentators.